I believe that we have made great change. I think in five years it's going to be the same. I think in five years, when we look back, even if it doesn't look that way as we build piece by piece, we will be a technically advanced, user-first global news organization that is sustained by a diversified revenue model. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and media outlets in Asia are now in the midst of the next technological evolution with Web3. And today, I have an important guest, Gary Liu, Chief Executive Officer of South China Morning Post, or SEMP, to tell us about their digital transformation journey and where they are heading. Hi, Gary. It's great to see you again after we have chatted three years back in person when you were in Singapore. How have you been doing? Oh, I've been doing okay. It's good to be with you again. I wish we were doing this in person. Same here. I wanted to ask, since our last conversation, I guess there's a lot of changes in the world going on. And one of the biggest change was the relationship between the United States and China have deteriorated with the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic. What I'm more interested to know from your perspective, where do you see the future of the South China Morning Post and its place to bridge the gap of understanding between the Western world and China? I think from the last time we spoke, the only thing that has really changed is that the SCMP's role in, as you put it, being a bridge between the Western world and China, that role has only gotten more important. I mean, three years ago, we were talking about a risen China that was impacting the world in large ways and small ways. But there were plenty of people around the world who were not convinced of that. They were not convinced that China mattered all that much. If you're outside of Asia, why should I pay attention to China? Many people paid attention to China only as this faraway boogeyman at times, or this topic of exotic interest, which is odd considering that three years ago it was 2019, and we should have been, as a, as a world, much more cognizant at that point, much more advanced in our global understanding. But that was still, frankly, the way that China was being treated. I'm not talking about for insiders, China watchers, business leaders who operate in Asia. I'm talking about just the general public around the world. But in the last three years in the Western world, China has become front and center, a topic, a country, a people that cannot be ignored. Unfortunately, it's because of, of a lot of bad things that have happened, including the pandemic, but also because people are realizing that the prices of their groceries in their local store in the Midwest is impacted by what China does. Their local stock markets or their local policies, social policies, sometimes political platforms of the candidates that they're voting for, all of these things are being impacted by what's happening on our side of the world. So SCMP's role which has not changed, to provide all of the information that people around the world need to better understand China, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, so that they can make the right and informed decisions for themselves, for their constituents, of your politicians, for their businesses, of your leaders, for their students and schools, of your, of your educators, whatever it is, that information, the need for that information has only grown and the, the, the importance of objective reporting on China, comprehensive reporting of China, has also only increased. So the short of it is that I believe the South China Morning Post is more important now than it has ever been before, that the bet we made, frankly, our founders made 118 years ago, but in this round, in this phase of transformation we made starting five years ago, that this news organization can and should be a global news organization, that bet has paid off. It, it, the shift of gravity has played out exactly as uh, we had discussed three years ago. So the evolution of being still an institution of trust to provide the information to help the world to breach the understanding of China still stands as it is. That's correct. That has not changed. Mm. So... Today I got you here because I I'm very curious to learn a lot more about SEMP's uh, digital transformation journey. I think since your appointment as the CEO of SEMP, you have betted on using technology to power the digital transformation of the paper itself. To start, how was the early days like? For example, in assembling the team and building 
different digital components that have led to its current state? Okay, that's a great question. If you don't mind, Bernard, I'm going to back up probably half a step from your question and talk a little bit about the stages of change, because I think it's really important to understand, at least from my perspective, the stages of change to better understand what SCMP has gone through over the last five years. So I believe that company growth and transformation is a part of growth or a way to growth. It generally always happens in phases. It's it's really hard to sustain growth and certainly hard to sustain transformation continuously without an end in sight. And these phases always have similar patterns. The pattern that I have I've observed over and over again, not only at the post, but at different companies before the post, there are really four different stages of a growth or transformational phase. To me, those are one, diagnose and strategize. Two, evangelize and recruit. Three, experiment and learn. Four, focus and scale. Okay, so very briefly, the, those four, the first one, diagnose and strategize, you wanna understand where your company, your team, whatever it is, where it is situated, the assets that it currently has, and you want to know exactly where you want to go. And you build out a plan from A to Z, right? Or for some people, maybe A to B, A to C, whatever it is, you diagnose and you strategize. The second stage is evangelize and recruit. Now you're telling the story. You're explaining why change is necessary and how you are going to accomplish the change and what the end of that journey is going to look like. And as part of that storytelling, you are getting people, you're surrounding yourself with people, you're bringing people into the organization or up-leveling people from within the organization to really, really believe in that same process, that same change and buy in. The third step, experiment and learn, is you start trying a bunch of things because that plan I talked about when you were strategizing, that plan is never going to be followed to a T. It's, it's near impossible to protect the future that clearly. And so what you're doing is that you're actually, you know where you're, the, the, the end goal is, you're zigging and zagging until you get there. And so you're trying a bunch of things and you're learning along the way. They're going to be failures in this part of transformation and growth. And then finally, you focus and you scale. What that means is you take all the learnings that you've accumulated and you decide, and, you, and at that point you should know enough to realize, okay, here are the core areas that we must invest in, that we must be world beaters at, to become the company that we want to become and to actually grow, to scale this growth. Now, SMP went through all of these phases in the last five years. And I believe that the hardest phase is actually the last one, focus and scale. A lot of people flip it around, I think, the wrong way. They think diagnosis and strategy, they think evangelism and recruitment, they even think experimentation is hard. And I'm not saying that any of those stages are easy, but I believe that by far the hardest is focusing and scaling, consolidating all of those learnings, knowing exactly where to deploy resources, and then being able to execute with both precision and speed to achieve that growth. That is the part, uh, frankly, makes or breaks a transformational phase, a period of growth, and that's the hardest part to get right. Focus is difficult. Execution with precision and speed is difficult. On top of that, SCMP has had to execute on that last stage during a global pandemic. And, and that has made it, I think, exponentially more difficult. That said, I believe that SCMP is coming to the end of this growth phase, this transformational phase. And our company has become stronger, faster, far more impactful than even the last time you and I spoke three years ago than we were at the start of this. Now, I, I, I want to be clear. This does not mean the SCMP is done. Okay, with whatever you want to call it, with modernization, digitization, new monetization, we're not done. It's just that SCMP is completing a phase of transformation, and it's a very, very important one, and we have done very well, and it's time to embark on another phase soon. That was my stepping half a step back, so sorry that, that hopefully it was not too long-winded for you or your listeners. But back to your original question, which is, how were those early days assembling the team and building out the, the different digital components? That was a lot of fun because there was all of the opportunity in the world. It was before it, it felt like if the world started crumbling around us, 
and the conditions of the marketplace started changing so dramatically, uh, so unpredictably, I should say. And, and so the path ahead of us is very, very clear. And a lot of people bought in to the vision that we had because the opportunity was so big. And we were able to bring on incredible talent for this phase of transformation. So that was a lot of fun. Then it got to brass tacks, uh, hard execution, and it's been a challenge, but I'm very, very proud of how the post has weathered the last few years. I like to ask this, what worked and what did not work during this first phase of the digital transformation journey up to maybe last year? That's, uh, there's a lot to go through. How about this? Let me very, very briefly tell you what worked and what didn't work, and then you can decide where you want to dig in. A couple of things that really worked for us that were from the very first original plan. First, it was betting on the global nature of the China story. As, as we spoke about it in the intro, we bet that China is going to matter to everyone. And that is no exaggeration, literally everyone around the world, that it wasn't just an insider topic okay, for policy, diplomacy wonks, for curious business leaders, for academics. It wasn't just for those folks. It was for everyone. And that, that turned out to be correct. The second thing that worked was that we early, early on determined that for the South China Morning Post to become a global news organization, in, in the in quote unquote, the modern digital age, we needed to be user first and we needed to focus on product and data. And that focus on users, understanding them, and therefore the need to build up an extremely advanced data stack has really worked out for us because it has given us the competitive edge that has allowed us to grow around the world so quickly over the last several years. The third thing that has really worked is our commitment to modernizing the workforce. Now, modernizing the workforce is not about turning over a bunch of folks that have been at the post for many, many, many years and hiring in a bunch of new talent who are quote unquote digitally savvy or digitally native. That's not what actually the, the majority of our modernization looked like. The majority of our modernization was upskilling people that were already in the organization who have the institutional knowledge, the pattern recognition that is necessary in a news company. And it's about creating an environment and processes and tools that allows for fast iteration, for people to work faster than they've ever worked before, more precisely than they've ever worked before, and more productively than they, than they have ever worked before. That's what modernization of the workforce looks like. And we bet on that. We put a lot of our resources into that. And then the fourth thing that really worked was investment in company, brand, and culture. True investment, not just words, but lots and lots of executive time placed into building up both an internal and external identity that aligned perfectly with our mission and then trying, although sometimes we have failed and especially in crisis is not easy, to build a culture internally that is driven by values. It doesn't mean that we don't have hard times. We are not like a, I don't, I don't think most companies that want to pretend they're happy-go-lucky, everyone's always smiling when they walk into the office and everyone's always looking forward to happy hour at the end of the week and the water cooler conversations are always lots of laughs. I, even companies who pretend like that is the case, I think it's rarely ever re truly the case. But trying to aspire to a culture of transparency where people do believe that my success is not dependent only on what I do and what I control, but on the success of all the people around us. That is something we've aspired to, and we have made progress towards that. So those four things have really worked. The things that have not worked, and I think I'm just going to bring up one key thing that has not worked, and we thankfully figured it out just a couple of years into the process and have corrected it over the last few, is we try to create new audiences. Okay, And, and what I mean by that is we put a lot of effort initially to build sub-brands underneath the South China Morning Post umbrella and use those sub-brands to convince readers around the world, new readers around the world, that China matters. So effectively, we were trying to force a product market fit, and that did not work. What ended up working was that naturally, because of what was happening in the world, people started being curious about China. And when they started being curious, it was our core product. The one that we thought originally oh, was too old school and stayed of a brand and problematic for people who don't know us. It may sound really, really foreign because we call the South China Morning Post. It was that core brand that people found and then latched onto and trusted when their native curiosity rose up. 
So we are now doubling down. We started to double down on the core expertise and the core experience and trusting that new audiences will show up as opposed to trying to create new audiences. I think that's what we got wrong early on. What would you have done differently given that part didn't work out? Would you have just started to really focus on the core brand? But I guess the experimentation is also part of the the fun in trying to make yeah. the change, right? It, it is a really interesting question. Would I have done anything different? Should we as a company have done anything different? I mean, I, I, yes and no. I think the part that we should have done differently was we shouldn't have taken a middle ground of trying to build out new brands and new products within an existing business. Because what ended up happening was that that limited the resources that we were willing to allocate to those things, that new experimentation. And, and we didn't fully commit. And at the same time, what that meant was that we were extracting resources away from the core business, which we, in retrospect, shouldn't have done because we should have been investing even more in the core business and core expertise from day one. So I think having that level of experimentation, that type of experimentation, not all experimentation, but that specific type of experimentation as part of core meant that we were halfway with it. What I would not have changed is just general experimentation, because at the end of the day, we learned so much about how to track and understand new audiences, about new user experiences that are now actually part of our core. A lot of things that we tried out with those sub-brands that I mentioned, Abacus and Inkstone, have now been built into SMP.com and are key features in SMP.com's content discovery, distribution mechanics, user experience, community experience, all of those other pieces. A lot of the processes that we created to move faster and the technologies that we built in-house to move faster for a you know web-only distribution, those now are core to our day-to-day operation. So that experimentation, I would not have given up. So yes and no, there's certain things I would have done differently, certain things I would have kept. Upon reflecting about your point on what worked, it, it suddenly dawned on me that most digital transformations usually work if the focus is on people rather than the technology, on the technology or changing processes across. I guess from your point of view, um, because I think I, I've also done a similar digital transformation with Singapore Post as well, in terms of thinking about people, people being the center of it. Do you think that it's actually not that hard to do digital transformation because the real part of it is actually getting the culture ingrained and moving people along because I always have this point of view that everyone loves transformation, but they hate to change. That's a, I mean, that's a great line. It is absolutely true. I, I, I think you are right. The, the key thing you have to get right in digitization is that your organization internally has to modernize. And if, if, if internally it doesn't modernize, then externally the product would never never really be there. I, I would take it a step further to say that to incentivize a workforce to change, because you know, as you put it, everyone wants to transform, no one really wants to change. To get them to change, the thing that they really have to understand is the user. No one wants to go to work every single day and not have an impact. And if change is necessary to have impact, your employees want to know what that impact is and what they're changing for. At the end of the day, it's impact with our readers, with your users. So if you're able to understand users and explain what user expectations are today versus what they used to be and show the gap between what you are producing as a company today versus what it needs to be to be impactful to users, that's when employees start to change. Start to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm like, we need to change and I'm willing to do X, Y and Z. I don't want to pretend that we have done that perfectly well at the post. There have been, I think, moments and periods where we have over-indexed on understanding our users and then teaching our employees and our company about those users, but it has not been consistent enough, even for us. Just those pockets have significantly advanced the South China Morning Post, and I'm glad for them. Uh, but I think we need to be even more consistent about it going into the, uh, into the future. I've been tracking what is going on from for the South China Morning Post. And I think one interesting milestone that I actually observed is that you all have just reached 1 billion YouTube views within three years and actually grew your subscribers from something like a very small, like 27K to 1.5 million. I think the heart of it is the video strategy. 
So how is the video strategy developed within the post and what are the key decisions that the team has gotten right in building towards that success in such a short time? Thanks for bringing up, uh, that up, by the way. We're very proud of what we've done. The numbers are far larger than that at this point. Our, our core YouTube channel, not to mention all of the other YouTube channels that we have, our core YouTube channel already has 2.7 million subscribers. And we now have about 2.7 billion uh, views. And we're generating well over a billion views a year now. The video success of the South China Morning Post has been... I think going back to exactly what, what I just mentioned, I, I think it's because we understand who the user is, right? Video is an extremely flexible storytelling medium. We knew that up front four years ago, actually a little over that. I think it's nearly, it's about five years ago now when we decided to invest in video, even though we really did not understand video at that time, we decided to invest in video because we realized what the canvas that it actually is for new storytelling. But we also committed to understanding the user before we doubled down on video as a channel, because at that point, remember in 2017, we were already seeing fissures in the pivot to video strategy that a lot of media organizations had started in like 2014, 2015. And organizations that were very, very, very video heavy were realizing they were not monetizing because they put all of their resources in the video and, and they were getting these huge view counts, but they were not monetizing properly. They were doing one specific type of video, which was generating a lot of views, but it was not actually having real impact and it was not a good business model. So we resolved to invest in video as a new storytelling canvas, but to really understand the user. And so what we did was we realized that there were multiple different use cases for video, many different personas who want to consume content and news on video. And, and a lot of times, you know, some of those personas only wanted to consume on video. Other times they wanted to be a supplement to other forms. And so our video production became varied. If you look at our YouTube channel today, you will see all sorts of video. There are short compilations of wire or UGC videos with text overlays that are built specifically for social distribution. You don't even need to turn on the sound to understand what's going on. There are beautifully shot experiential videos to take you into the countryside of China or to the, the street markets of Southeast Asia. There are long form documentaries that go deep into complex issues about the development of the world and especially this part of the world. We have talk shows, we have live streams, we have all sorts of different types of video. And our success is because there isn't, we realize there isn't a single video audience and we are creating for all the different types of video audiences. We even built a studio specifically to serve a variety of needs. We never had that much budget to build the kind of studio that some of our other news peers around the world, even in Asia, have. There, there are news organizations in Singapore that have incredible studio operations and studio facilities. We have a, a very, very small studio in our Hong Kong office, but that studio was custom built to serve a variety of needs because we realized that there were many different personas and we had picked a few that we wanted to serve. That I think has been core to our video success, understanding those users. If I double click a little bit more onto the video strategy, is it important to just focus on one channel before you start going horizontally across the different channels? I mean, today could be YouTube but then you can think about things like TikTok, all the other platforms out there. Um, I'm not sure I have the most informed answer to that. The way that the SCMP has operated is that the vast majority of our resources has gone to a single format of video. It's not a single type, it's a, it's a single format. Um, and what I mean by that is effectively we produce for YouTube that those videos can be cut for other distribution channels, but we're focusing on producing the best possible video. It's, it's a specific format. It could be short form, it could be long form, it could be sound with, with text overlays and no voiceover, it could be floating heads, it could be a bunch of different things, but it's the same format. What people get wrong is that they think they can do it all. A, a, a single video team can do it all. Listen, if you have a company that has 100 people in your video department, maybe you can do YouTube, you can do custom Instagram videos. 
You can do Snapchat and all of those vertical formats, IG stories, stuff like that. YouTube has their own format now. You can do all of these different formats and do all of them well. We don't have that size of a video team, so we decided to commit to doing one format really, really, really well, and that has paid off for us. Have we missed opportunity on other channels? Probably. But for now, I think we're we're satisfied with winning uh, with one specific format. I would say that really aligns with what you mentioned earlier about focus and skill, right? Because first, by focusing on one channel, you could actually really double down and really making sure that you're really good in this, whether it's across Asia or across the world. Well, I, I want to be clear. When I say that we're focusing primarily on one format, I mean, you, you, you are going to see SCMP experimentation in small, small pockets and other different formats, but we're focusing primarily on one format. It doesn't mean we're limited to one channel. Right on Facebook now, I think we have like north of 4 million followers or something like that. And video distribution on Facebook does really, really well for SCMP as well. But if you talk to the video team and ask them what channel they are focused on, they will say YouTube. And the reason is because the, the connection with the user is much more direct on YouTube than it is on Facebook today. But it doesn't mean that we're willing to give up Facebook as a distribution channel because it also plays well for us. But the format remains. SCMP's premier format is, you know, what you can imagine is the letterbox, not, not the full like widescreen movie, letterbox video. Uh, you know, with high quality production. I enjoy watching some of these videos on your app. So when we last spoke in person, you were in Singapore, that was before the pandemic. There were very clear indications that you're setting to expand your footprint across Southeast Asia. Did the pandemic actually slow down the expansion plans or, and is it the intense due towards geographic expansion of South China Morning Post across Asia Pacific? Uh, interesting question. I think very honestly, yes, the pandemic did impact parts of that plan. And, and I want to be clear, I want to make sure that we're on the same page and your uh, listeners understand what I mean when I say that we wanted to grow across Southeast Asia. There were two ways that we wanted to grow. And that I should say we are growing. The first is we have a lot of readership in Southeast Asia. A third of our audience comes from Southeast Asia. And that is because, uh, frankly, China impacts everything that happens in Southeast Asia. One of the key issues for Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and then now into you know South Asia, India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh. One of the major issues for all of those places is their relationship with China, and more and more folks from Southeast Asia just like the rest of the world, want to read about China, understand China. On top of that, the soft side of China, the soft power side of China, is that Chinese culture, talking about like popular culture, is now deeply impacting uh, the rest of Asia as well. It's not just Korean soft culture anymore, it's Chinese as well. And so there is far more interest around Southeast Asia for SCMP's reporting. So we wanted to grow that audience, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we did not report that story, especially the foreign relations diplomatic story, only from China's point of view. So our goal was to grow our correspondence core around Southeast Asia to report from multiple capitals about the impact of China's rise and, and the overall rise of Asia to the rest of the world. That has become more complex because of COVID. We do, we have actually grown our footprint in reporting across Southeast Asia, and we've grown our engaged audience across Southeast Asia as well. So that has been a positive. But uh, we would have liked to move faster. It was just really difficult working in distributed newsrooms without really understanding the newsroom culture, without being able to visit headquarters and stuff like that is not easy, right? I mean, it's just harder. And so we do hope that travel channels will open up again. And then we'll have these exchanges and be able to start building up our core faster. The second way that we wanted to grow in Southeast Asia was the business side. We, we have, like I said, a third of our audience in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of opportunity for brands to engage with a, a very well-educated, very influential audience in multiple different countries. Our sales operation in Southeast Asia is based out of Singapore. And again, we have made advances in sales and in partnerships, corporate partnerships 
around Southeast Asia. We do hope that that will accelerate once executives can travel cross-border. We can actually go meet clients face-to-face. So I look forward to hopefully middle or end of this year when we won't return back to normal, but there will be some normalcy again. So I'll look forward to catching you when you're next in Singapore. So since I have you here, I thought I want to segue this conversation. Actually, it's still the next phase of your digital transformation journey. So what I want to talk about is moving SCMP to a Web3 world. I think to start off, maybe let's baseline our conversation because I've seen a lot of press releases and also some of the intent from SCMP towards the Web3 world or what we call now call the metaverse. Can you define what do you mean by Web3 and the metaverse from your point of view? Okay, I'm glad that we're baselining. So let's ignore marketing and PR language. Let's talk specifically about these three words. Blockchain is the technology. Web3 is the idea that the internet is uh, becoming decentralized, not going back to the decentralization where it started, but becoming decentralized in a very, very new and unique way. Okay, so Web3 is kind of all the applications of blockchain technology that allow for the decentralization of the internet. The metaverse is also an application of blockchain technology, but specifically the applications that create a digital world, not always virtual, just a digital world, where real world concepts of value and scarcity can provably exist, okay? So real world concepts of value and scarcity mean that my digital assets and the effort I put in to building my presence or my identity in a digital world can have actual value. And that's why I, I can choose to exist much more fully in this quote unquote metaverse. That's the distinction in my mind between those three terms, blockchain, the technology, Web3, decentralization of the internet, and a metaverse as a digital world where, where value and scarcity can provably exist. So I guess, which are the elements of Web3 that you find most interesting and compelling to the media space itself? I mean, for example, non-fungible tokens is probably one of that NFTs because we've seen almost media outlets across the world are beginning to embrace that. There are several for media and, and they're all concepts as opposed to specific applications of the technology. You can connect the concept to uh, a specific application of the technology today. But again, I, I want to talk in concepts. The first concept I think that is really important to media is the immutable recording of information on the blockchain. So the idea that information that is now digital, you can, you can be pretty sure that it can exist forever. right? And, and that has never really been true. Because you put something on any server, that server goes down, it's gone. Previous to that, you put things on hard drives, and that hard drive eventually is going to fail, and then it'll be gone. And the cost of actually archiving and retaining digital information is actually really, really expensive. It's, it, it, people think that maintaining physical archives are far more expensive than digital. I think they fail to understand how difficult it really is to long-term sustain uh, digital history. The second concept is the decentralized ownership and access to information. That's really interesting to me for media. It means that you can you can monetize media in a very, very different way. And democratize is a very loaded term, but hopefully you guys understand the general concept of it. You can democratize access to information in a way that we've always talked about when it comes to the internet, but it's never really been true. And I do think that blockchain offers that opportunity. And the third thing that is really interesting to me is that this provable scarcity of media assets, which opens up completely new business models. It opens up completely new creation dynamics. It opens up completely new community dynamics. Those three things, those three concepts for a blockchain-driven internet or Web3, I think are going to turn the media world upside down. And you're the CEO of a media outlet, but you also have a pretty strong technology background before you joined SEMP. How do you think about your strategy for SEMP with Web3 being a potential disruptor to both the tech and media space, moving from a centralized world to a decentralized world, or maybe even more? Okay, so yes, I I absolutely do believe that it will be a disruptor, but... I think we're just the tip of the spear. And let's, let's be honest, I think that there are already other tips of spears 
that had punctured holes that we're kind of following through. But I think in Asia, I hope that the SCMP will be a tip of the spear. And at the very least, introduce concepts that other news organizations, news executives can wrap their head around, maybe introduce applications that they can actually also use to experiment so that the overall adoption of decentralized technologies, blockchain technologies in Asia's media space is faster, more effective than I think our regional transition to digital media was. So that's why when you hear the South China Morning Post talk about our present blockchain efforts, specifically Artifact, it's about setting a standard. It's not about building something that is just for SCMP. In fact, that has not been any part of our messaging. It is about building something that can be used by all of our peers and many other historical institutions, cultural institutions around the world. Our goal is to provide a framework and protocols and platforms that allow other people to move into this new world or to at least experiment in this new world relatively quickly. Since you mentioned artifacts project by the SAMP actually relates to NFTs as well. In fact, there's also a white paper written on the project too. Can you tell my audience what's the inspiration behind this project? Yes, absolutely. The South China Morning Post has had multiple years of quote-unquote history with blockchain. And what I mean by that is that we have been studying the evolution of DLT for at this point about four years. And multiple times over those last four years, we have very seriously considered pulling the trigger on blockchain projects. And the reason is because we, we became convinced that blockchain technology will impact the media space and, and we didn't want to be late. We ended up still being a little bit late, frankly, but we, we never pulled the trigger on those projects previously because a lot of them, and most of them had to do with decentralized authentication of information and blockchain technologies, even today, and the communities, and frankly, niche communities that have fully adopted blockchain technologies are still not enough and they still don't provide enough of a global perspective that we believe the centralized authentication of information is a good thing yet. It will get there. That's why we never pull the trigger. But the NFT, the non-fungible token, the rise of that technology over the last few years, especially the explosion of that technology in early 2021, gave us an incredible new opportunity because of that provable scarcity of digital assets. It creates new business models. It creates new ways to engage a global audience and also new ways to immutably record information so that it can't ever be destroyed. All of those three things matter to us as a news organization. I mentioned that before. NFTs provide us an opportunity to do all three. So we decided last year that we wanted to try and quote-unquote tokenize or take parts of our archives and make them into NFTs. But as we started digging into it, we could have done what everyone else did. And there are many news organizations that moved much faster than we did and have already minted a lot of NFTs and actually made quite a bit of money, especially during the, the craze phase. We decided not to do that because when we looked at the NFT technology that exists today and the platforms, specifically the markets and the exchanges, that allow for NFT trade, we realize that those markets and the NFT standards that are built today were not built for meaningful historical assets, for things that really required context to sort of tell the story of significance and therefore to be able to secure its value, long-term value. Specifically, there was no standard for metadata for historical things. NFTs have generally been new creations. And so what mattered in the metadata was who created it, when it was created, and then kind of the order of transaction and the provable scarcity. But all the previous history of pre-creation, the context of everything that led to that, 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 that moment that was captured, metadata did not serve any of that. And no marketplace in the world serves that need. For historical NFTs, to have sustained value for collectors, right? That today operate in a very traditional world to move onto the blockchain and start trading, buying and trading, and then therefore adding greater value to the overall ecosystem. We needed a solve for that. And so we decided to build a standard ourselves because it didn't exist. That was what we were looking for when we decided to NFT our 
parts of our archives. The standard did not exist, so we decided to build that. So that's the genesis. So the Artifact Project, very simply put, is SCMP designing a new metadata standard specifically for historical NFTs. We're designing it with a council of experts from multiple different industries that are all experts in different verticals, different sectors on capturing and preserving history. Many of them are experts on preserving history digitally, and they're helping us create this metadata standard. We are then, as SCMP, going to offer up parts of our archives as the guinea pig. We're dogfooding the standard. And so we are going to be dropping the first NFTs that have this new artifact metadata standard. That's dropping at the start of March. Once that's dropped, we expect that over the course of the next year to bring on other cultural and historical institutions to mint NFTs from their assets, which also have this specific metadata standard. And then suddenly, you're going to have a world of historical NFTs that are all connected to each other by the same metadata standard that can be traded on specific marketplaces in plural that support this metadata standard and are always going to place these NFTs and assets within the necessary context to truly understand their significance. So how does the artifact provide that standard in recording history, given that it is a metadata standard and also a smart contract for the historical NFTs itself? Yeah, so very simply, technically, the metadata standard we've set out, and it's been published, so you can consider the, the standard itself technically, the taxonomy to be open source, but that is actually built into the smart contract. So the specific artifact smart contract that will be used to mint these NFTs the metadata standard will be actually part of the actual NFT. So it's not stored somewhere else, pointed to it, and, and have the, the NFT point to that metadata. The metadata will be on chain. That to us is really, really important and part of the reason why we ended up choosing Flow as our launch chain. How does the artifact standard then define the historical significance of asset? Example, right? Say like in Hong Kong, 1997, the handover back to China. That's a very significant event. You probably have some record, some article on it. How does the artifact standard actually define that historical significance and for that specific asset? So maybe it could be a picture. So this was a huge philosophical debate for us as we were first putting together the standard on whether or not we wanted to explicitly define historical significance. Where we landed, Bernard, is that we want the issuers, right? The people who are the guardians of these assets who have decided that they want to tokenize them and make them into NFTs. We want those experts to be able to uh, suggest significance, but then we really wanted the community, the people to actually finally define it. So the way we've gone about it is this. The metadata standard itself, in the metadata itself, there is no significance field. All there is, is there's context. You are able to, in the metadata, define all the people, the places, the entities that are associated with this asset. You're able to define as provenance. You're able to actually editorialize, right? Write both short and long descriptions that you as the expert want to attach to this NFT. Okay, that's, that's immutable, that's, that's on-chain. And then you as an issuer can also decide on its scarcity. So that is you suggesting how historically significant this asset is. In some ways, you can decide it's scarcity. Something that is really, really, really historically significant, I may only release five editions of this NFT, maybe even one. But something that is less historically significant, but I still think people are going to want to own for nostalgia or for personal significance, whatever it is, I may release 10,000 editions. Right? So I can suggest it's historically significant. By the end of the day, its actual significance, I believe, will be decided by buyers and the community. And that significance will be expressed through its price, through how it's traded, right? how many people want to own it. And all of that context, that metadata, will help people discover assets that they believe are historically significant and, and drive a marketplace right, of transaction. So that's what's really interesting to me about this project. 
And I just want to dive into one interesting aspect of the artifacts, which is the choice of using the Flow blockchain, which you will release historical news archives as NFTs. For those who do not know, Flow is a layer one blockchain which that delivers the NFTs like CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shots. My question would be, what is the motivation behind the choice of using Flow? And will you consider other blockchains, uh, for example, Ethereum, Binance, or even Solana, that's actually currently quite popular with NFT creation as such? Or it's just, it's just a question of trying to get it right with the first blockchain? Let me answer your question a little bit backwards. The artifact standard is meant to be uh, cross-chain, chain agnostic. So eventually the artifact standard, we hope and we expect, will exist on multiple different chains. Frankly speaking, it's going to anyway because so many bridges are being built between major layer ones. But we decided to start with Flow for several reasons. Number one, the Flow blockchain is built for scale transaction and the, the security protocol is very, very airtight. And that matters to things that really have significance, right? And especially the institutions that we're working with and SCMP as well, we don't want to be on a blockchain that has security flaws and issues. And we don't want one that doesn't scale for transaction. The second reason is because Dapper Labs understands IP. And Flow specifically as a blockchain is built to serve IP owners. And that matters to us. It goes hand in hand with why security matters so much to Flow. But that's why. Those are two reasons. The third one is that there's already an existing community of buyers on Flow that also understand IP, okay? which is really important. And then the fourth reason is that because it doesn't have the, the gas fee issue of Ethereum, even though there's so much more liquidity on, on Ethereum, for our project right now, because we want that metadata standard, that metadata to be on-chain, Ethereum would have been really cumbersome and the gas fees would have been really high and it would have been hard to, to bring new buyers onto this project because just the transaction fees are so high. So for those reasons, we have chosen Flow. Dapper Labs has been a great partner and we definitely look forward to investing in Flow first, getting the metadata standard, the issuers, the ecosystem and the community built and scaled on this one layer one and then eventually earning the right to become chain agnostic. So recently I have Yatsu, um, co-founder and chairman of Animoca Brands on the show, talking about his perspectives on digital ownership and NFTs. Can you share more about the partnership that you are now doing with the Sandbox and also creating cultural experience for the metaverse in the NCMB? Sure, the, the short version of this, that the Sandbox, which is a, it's a metaverse platform, is again for us a different type of canvas. And because it's voxel-based, it means that we can build 3D metaverse experiences relatively easily. We're still not very good at it, I want to be clear. Uh, this is very, very new ground for us. And there's so many awesome creators within the Sandbox community that do incredible things. And we marvel at it when we're in their alpha experiences and the SCMP aspires to become as good as them in the future. But the Sandbox allows us to actually create experiences that traverse space and time, literally. And our goal is to build environments where people can learn about Hong Kong, China at different points in history in a very interactive way and use our historical archives to inform that experience and actually to be part of that experience. So the first thing that we are launching as part of Sandbox Alpha 2 which will come out, I think, in the next month or so, is a recreation of Hong Kong's very famous central pier. But this recreation has been done in two ways. When you first start the experience, you'll find yourself in the central pier as it looks today in 2022. And then as you go through a discovery process and learn about the history of the central pier, you will get transported back in time. And then you get to see the central pier as it was. It's a beta experience. Actually, it's an alpha experience, technically. It's a proof of concept for us. And I think that if it goes well, this platform gives us incredible opportunity to tell historical stories and to teach the world about Hong Kong and China in just the most compelling new way. So I'm very excited about this experiment. 
I'm also very excited because I am now seeing the second phase of your digital transformation journey into Web3. I have one last question before the closing. What does great look like for the South China Morning Post in the next three to five years? Oh, that's a big question. What does great look like? I think actually it's going to be hard to, well, I'll put it this way. Great will be built piece by piece. And it may not be evident during the process, but the culmination of all of that work, a few years later, five years later, when we look back, we will be able to say, wow, that was great. It's the same as today. Throughout the process of the last five years, I think if you talk to our executives, our teams internally, hopefully, would have been able to tell you what the goal is in, in this phase of transformation. But in those moments, we really focused on the day-to-day, -day, the execution. We don't have the time to step back and just acknowledge what has been built. And a lot of times people might say to you, well, I, I'm not sure that we're great yet. But now that we're coming to the end of that first phase of transformation, we look back and, and, and realize what we looked like five years ago, who we were, what we were able to do five years ago, and compare that to who we are today and the impact we have on the world today. I believe that we have made great change. I think in five years, it's going to be the same. I think in five years, when we look back, even if it doesn't look that way as we build piece by piece, we will be a technically advanced, user-first global news organization that is sustained by a diversified revenue model. And that is the important evolution. Yes, we're already technically advanced, especially compared to our regional peers. We're already far more user-first than we were five years ago. We are already a global news organization in a way that we were only dreaming about five years ago. And all of those three pieces are going to advance even further in the next five years. But the key change is that we will be a sustainable news business. That is going to require diversified revenues, revenues that we have invested in over the last several years, and we are now starting to build up to find that J-curve of scale. So in the age of the metaverse in five years, that may not sound ultimately sexy, Bernard, to you or your listeners, but I think that it will be deeply impactful deeply impactful to the world if the South China Morning Post is able to achieve that sustained level of greatness. And I look forward to talking to you about that the next time around on this. So Gary, many thanks for coming on the show. And I only have two very short questions to ask in closing. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? This, this is going to sound really kitschy, but read the South China Morning Post. This is a really, really <laughs> hard moment in history to do journalism anywhere in the world, especially difficult to do journalism correctly and comprehensively about our part of the world. And I am legitimately inspired by the work of my colleagues every single day. If you read the South China Morning Post every single day, not only will you learn so much and understand a complicated part of the world so much better, but you will see the effort of this incredible newsroom, of this incredible organization. And yeah, I'm a little bit biased as a CEO, but I really do think our readers, people around the world, if they read the South China Morning Post, they'll see that same inspiration. And how can my audience find you? Thanks for that tea up, www.scmp.com. And definitely you can find us anywhere in any podcast platform and just give us a five-star rating and write us a review. Gary, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Run it, run it, run it.